We translate for those who can't understand. We write for those who can't hear. We describe for those who can't see. Subti Subtitles and accessibility for film, television and theater. Subti.com Fred, 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 Fred. This is Natasha Sinyanovic for Fred Film Radio. Fred Film Radio, Zvami Sambor Pretershik. Fred Film Radio, Sono Angela Prudenzi. Essa è Fred Film Radio, io chiamo Ariane Morissal, del Festival di Berlino. Angela Cerbi per Fred Film Radio, on è al Festival di Venise. Fred, Fred, the festival experience in 23 languages. Cinephile, you're listening to the Big Fred Tuesday, Fred Film Radio's weekly show on all things cinema with a particular focus on independent filmmaking and the international film festival scene. The show is hosted and produced by yours truly, Matt Micucci. And welcome to the final episode of the Big Fred Tuesday of 2021. We're wrapping it up for the year. Since next week is Christmas week and I gotta take a break because I'm so damn burnt out, it's crazy. But I do want to take this opportunity to wish anyone listening a happy new year and a happy Christmas if you celebrate or a happy Hanukkah or just happiness in general. I speak your name. And I salute you. But it ain't time to wrap it up just yet, so let me tell you what we've got in store for today's BFT. We've got more from the Torino Film Festival just passed, which, of course, we were media partners of. I will be speaking with director Matias Rojas Valencia about his haunting film, A Place Called Dignity, which was presented at the latest edition of Black Knight's Tallinn. For the return of our celluloid heroes segment, I will be celebrating the life and legacy of Italian filmmaker Lina Wertmüller, the ever-provocative and irreverent trailblazing filmmaker recently passed away. And finally... I'll be leaving you for the year with one final recommendation for cinephile viewing in our regular conclusive segment, Popcorn Classics. Without further ado, fire up an audio teeny and listen to the audio waves as they fly through the air. And as you're flying through the air, maybe watch out for that reindeer with the glowing red nose. Let the show begin. This is the Big Fred Tuesday. Fred. We begin our show by checking out a snippet of Angelo Cerbi's interview with director Dennis Nagy about his film Natural Light, presented at the Torino Film Festival earlier this year. Take a listen. There is, there is a, a part of uh, your family history in this film, isn't it? So, I mean, the, the idea of the film came from your grandfather, am I right? Yes, it's, um, it, it was always uh, something that I grew up with, that uh, on, on Sunday lunches my grandfather was talking about the war, the, his, his experience in the war, which was also as a child, as understood it, as a kind of adventure movie, or, uh, which was a, a lot of, lot of excitement, and uh, I, I never felt really the, the stress of that or the, the, the tragical part of that. And uh, later on, I, I always wondered about that. And, uh, for example, there was this story uh, when he had to kill a partisan. He was ordered to kill a partisan. And I was always wondering what he went through his mind at that moment. He's, he finally, fortunately, didn't have to kill this man. But, but I was still interested and asked questions about this situation. What exactly was in his mind? And uh, he never really answered that. So when I, I made this movie, I, I, I was thinking, my, my grandfather was a music teacher. Uh, and uh, he, he came to the war. He had nothing to do with this war. He was uh, drafted in the army as, as everybody. Uh, and uh, I wondered, I didn't know if they committed any atrocities. But if, let's say, they committed an atrocity, how would I imagine his face? as a music teacher, as a soldier in this situation. Uh, it was important for me to have bring this idea back into my mind making this film. Yeah, actually, which is exactly what, I mean, what we watch in the film because your lead 
character is there, but he doesn't know, he doesn't understand why he's there, why and what he has to do. Actually, it just it was just. I mean, his only aim is to go back home. This is what he wants to do, right? Yes. And uh, but it's also a movie that it deals with the fact of common responsibility and the impossibility for the single to avoid those responsibilities, even if they're not exactly his own, you know? And um, the actor did an amazing job on that because as you were telling about your your grandfather, his face shows his, uh, you know, impossibility of doing, of, 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 of escape to... How did you work with him to... Uh, uh, our our idea or my idea was from the very beginning to work with faces mm-hmm. and uh, not to work with dialogues but mostly by silences and the presence of faces so it was a key idea for this film to work with amateurs uh, mm-hmm. amateurs who are playing themselves in the movie they are not uh, creating a character uh, but they are really playing the, the characters who they are themselves so we are watching people really doing daily routines and they are being themselves during these daily routines. It's very important how they cut a bread or how they wash themselves, how they eat. All these things tell a lot about their, 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 their psychology yeah, and it's not the enough. dialogues that talk in this film. So this was our approach to create this atmosphere through these amateurs. Uh, it's important to say that all these amateurs are people who were coming from agriculture in Hungary. So we found these people through three years of casting. Uh, three years of casting? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We went through, we called all the agriculture farms in Hungary one by one and asked them if they, we can come and look at the workers. So it took a lot of time, a lot of driving. <laughs> it was a really an amazing experience for me too as a going uh, and really understanding our country in a way, meeting the people every day uh, and meeting their families. It was not only important to convince these amateurs who, who actually didn't want to become actors. They didn't like this uh, idea of acting in a film. We had to convince them. We have to uh, convince their, or get their trust to get in this film. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and, and in order to, to have their trust, it was not only uh, needed to convince them, but also their wives, their children, <laughs> the, sometimes the mayor of the village, uh, sometimes <laughs> the doctor or the priest, you know, you, you really understood their whole uh, surroundings and environment, so it, it was actually a, a real lesson for me to, yeah. to, to get to know our country. <laughs> to listen to the full interview, check out fred.fm forward slash UK, that's fred.fm forward slash UK. Fred. Cinephile. Well, here we are. This is the final entry in our Celluloid Heroes canon of 2021. For those just tuning in for the first time, this is a segment of the show where I talk about artists who left an indelible mark on the history of film, whether they're directors, actors, producers, or whatever. And I really couldn't think of anyone better to dedicate this segment to than Lina Vermuller, the trailblazing Italian filmmaker who recently passed away in Rome. Bert Müller was born in 1928 in an aristocratic family of Swiss origins. She graduated from the Academy of Theatre in her birthplace of Rome in 1951. She also gained experience in puppetry and animation in her formative years. She held various jobs in Rome and even became assistant director to Federico Fellini, thanks to her friendship with the wife of Marcello Mastroianni. Her experience on the sets of Fellini's seminal works La Dolce Vita and Eight and a Half were very valuable indeed. In 1963, she wrote and directed her first movie, The Lizards, 
a bitter drama about small-town loafers set in southern Italy. Around this time, she also became friends with Giancarlo Giannini, who would star in many of her subsequent movies. They first collaborated on Rita the Mosquito, a 1966 musical and vehicle for Italian pop star Rita Pavone. But the first significant of their collaborations coincided with Bert Muller's first international success. The Seduction of Mimi from 1972 was a satire on sexual hypocrisy, changing social mores and the cultural differences between the north and south of Italy. With this movie, Bert Müller officially established herself as a force to be reckoned with and one of the strongest voices in European cinema. It also kicked off a stellar decade for the director. The Seduction of Mimi was followed by two more bitter satires on the eternal battle of the sexes and on contemporary political and social issues, Love and Anarchy from 1973 and Swept Away from 1974. The former earned Giannini a Best Actor Award at the Cannes Film Festival and the latter would get an infamous Hollywood treatment several years later, starring Madonna and Giancarlo Giannini's son, Adriano. It's worth mentioning that these three movies form a kind of unofficial trilogy, driven by lead performances by Giancarlo Giannini and actress Mariangela Melato. Their chemistry worked so well that to the arthouse film viewer of the time, they almost rivaled the popularity of the Italian on-screen couple par excellence of Sofia Loren and Marcello Mastroianni. Vermuller's international success of this period culminated with the arthouse hit film Seven Beauties from 1975. Giannini stars as an Italian dandy who finds himself having to betray all his moral values in order to survive in World War II and his internment in a Nazi death camp. For this film, Vermuller made history, becoming the first woman to be nominated for Best Directing at the Academy Awards. But her critical acclaim was not universal. In many ways, Vermuller was praised as much as she was fiercely criticized for tastelessness and her love for the grotesque. American critic Pauline Kael led the way. For her, Lena Vermuller was a misogynist and a misanthrope who reveled in the disgusting. Indeed, Vermuller's films are irreverent and provocative. As Scott Tafoya wrote, she was a thorn in the side of the art house establishment. A riposte to the stateliness of modernism, a woman unafraid of men and their violence and dominance. She lived to confuse people, to make them uncomfortable, to do things her way. If you didn't like it, that was on you. She found joy in horror and followed up atrocity with bad jokes. Bert Müller's subsequent films were critical and commercial disappointments, but her reputation was secure on the basis of her earlier films. There are some exceptions. 1978's Blood Feud, starring Sofia Loren, Marcello Mastroianni and Giancarlo Giannini, is an intense story chronicling the rise of fascism in a small Sicilian town and two men's romantic obsession with a beautiful and defiant widow. Today, the film is best known for its verbose original title, which is in fact a certified Guinness World Record. Another highlight is the little scene Ciao Professore from 1992 about a teacher who must deal with the underworld of Naples and a student's family problems. In her lifetime, she received many accolades and recognitions. In 1985, she received the Women in Film Crystal Award for outstanding women who, through endurance and the excellence of their work, have helped to expand the role of women within the entertainment industry and... She also has a Hollywood Walk of Fame star, a provocative, irreverent trailblazer and one of the most unforgettable voices of 1970s cinema. Lena Wertmüller, we speak your name 
and we salute you. Later in the show, I will choose three films from her filmography that I think are the bee's knees for anyone looking to dig deep into her body of work. But for now, let's carry on with more film conversations on the Big Fred Tuesday. Fred Film Radio. Joining us at this time is Chilean director Matias Rojas Valencia, who recently presented his latest film at the Tallinn Black Knights. Matias, welcome to the show. Thank you. Hi. So uh, we're going to be talking about your film, A Place Called Dignity. Uh, this is a film that revisits a dark uh, page in the history of Chile, told through the story of a of a twelve year old kid. But um, perhaps uh, you'd be uh, you'd do a better job in uh, telling the story of the film than me, especially because this is inspired by real events, right? Yeah. Colonia Dignidad, Dignity Colony, was a particular sect. Uh, most of the settlers arrived when they were children or were born inside the place, which made it easier for the, the leader uh, to control them. On the other hand, this place was projected by the Chilean civil military dictatorship uh, from the early 70s until uh, early 90s and it was shaped as a state within a state it was like a, a micro country protected by the dictator Pinochet and once the dictatorship was over this place uh, continued operating uh, during democracy and something that can be understood those days given the wide circle of protection that he had from different power, power spheres. Um, during the years of existence of Colonia Dignidad, many settlers tried to escape. However, the, the same police from the, this zone closely related to Paul Schaeffer and their, uh, and their people returned them to the colony resulting into brutal punishment such as electric shock, solitary confinement for years, and even death. So this place, the Dignity Colony, is a very special sec- sect, as I say, and 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 the, the, the time that, it, that that exists, uh, this 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 place was. Uh, for m- more for uh, for more 40 years y- you know i mean revisiting this part of uh, chilean history uh, i understand is not new to you your previous film roots also talked about german settlers uh, of the south of chile uh, what is it that interests you about this exploration of history and does it in a way coincide with a personal interest of yours perhaps a personal need or mission that you have as a filmmaker to talk about these things. Yes, uh, in particular in a place called Dignity. Uh, first of all, uh, the, the the German settlers of Dignity Colony are is a different uh, is in a different time um, from the settlers that I speak in in Root, because the settler that I speak in Root is the the settlers in the um, in the start of Chile, but in North Patagonia is, is, is far away from dignity colony. But I, I like this, uh, those topic because I'm really interested about the, the, 
the country uh, wounds, the country scars. Um, for me, it's very important to look back what what we did, what 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 happened in 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 our past, and in particular in Dignity Colony. Uh, in a place called Dignity, everything started when, as a child, I had a specific interest in this place. When I was 12, we went with my family to the restaurant that Colonia Dignidad had opened to the Chilean public. In the place, uh, caught my attention deeply, and I was greatly shocked with the, the faces of some of the settlers who worked there. They evoke me a profound uh, sadness and resignation. Those image stuck to my memory forever. And many years later, when I began the investigation for the movie script, for the writing, I found out that many of the settlers working at that restaurant during those years did so under punishment, torture, and the effect of uh, pills that they had uh, to take daily. I'm a part also of a generation that grew up hearing constant news and information about Colonia Dignidad such as the big scandal that took place in the late 90s regarding the escape of their leader, uh, Paul Schaeffer, to Argentina, south of Argentina, who was supported by politi politicians, uh, military and police in post-dictatorship times in a so-called democracy, you know. And Colonia Dignidad is a mystery, up to those days in many ways, and it represents an important part of our recent history. A country, Chile is a country that hides secrets, secrets, sorry, under a rough of alleged progress. There are still mem members of government now, politicians and influential civilians in different power, uh, power spheres up to date, who were part of the Colonia Dignidad circle of friends and protected Paul Schaeffer directly. I believe that reflecting upon this place may help to put forth a necessary and urgent, for me, review of recent history, not only for my country, but for all other countries where similar situations have been allowed. So do you feel like you're kind of part of uh, a generation of artists, of filmmakers who finally actually can talk about uh, these things and revisit this recent history? Yeah, I, I, I think that. Because for many years in Chile was, uh, was very difficult to speak uh, about some some topics you know the the, the dictatorship in chile um, ends in 1989 but for all the 90s you 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 cannot talk about that because uh, it was very polarized uh, everything and now uh, um, i don't know if if you know but this sunday sunday uh, in chile we will have the the new election for president, and and one of the the um, the candidates was very close to the dictatorship, and 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 also all these people in in dignity colony. So 
it's very very tough the 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 this this kind of topic in in Chile until now. We'll be back for more on a place called Dignity in a moment. Fred Film Radio. We're back with Matias Rojas Valencia talking about his film, A Place Called Dignity. Matias, let's talk about style. As we mentioned earlier, this film explores really heavy topics. So is it challenging to achieve an acceptable balance? Because on the one hand, you don't want to sugarcoat what life was like in the colony, but on the other, you don't want it to feel like an exploitation either. For me, the interesting thing was the uh, express the daily life uh, at Dignity Colony. Um, I I, ne I never want to make a film a typical historical basis through story film. Uh, no, for for me the 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 main goal is express and uh, make a. Uh, express the atmosphere there so um, I, I was very interested in the daily life in, in Colonia Dignidad the private life from the beginning of the project and the screenwriting it was very important to try to transmit what happened there not only plot wise um, but also on an expressive and sensorial level For that reason, the situations are created as if they were a constant theatrical stain. Uh, I don't know if I say correctly, a theatrical staining like mise en scène, uh, given that the settlers experienced every day a unique world through their eyes, with no possibility of perceiving the outside world. I wanted to portray their existence through expressive fragments of their daily life on this enclosed world and the degree of control practiced by their leader. For example, the annulment of natural human behavior through constant indoctrination basing of, on fear, punishment and torture. Many settlers born in this place knew nothing about a lot of subjects such as sexuality when they um, reached adulthood. So um was very important for me put all this topic in an expressive way not just make a narrative a film you know what i mean yes absolutely it's a very intense film so i was curious to ask you what was the atmosphere like on the set Oof. Well, well, it really was very tough because uh, this place um It still exists, Matt. So wow. uh, now, now this place is a a resort, an hotel, a restaurant. So it's open to the people because when uh, Paul Sheffer, the leader, dies in 2010, all the uh, some of the settlers escape from there, but others. Uh, decide to uh, 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 stay there, and 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 they decide also open the the, the doors and make a business about a hotel, restaurant, uh, the German food, the German tradition, and here in in Chile, uh, uh, too many people love that, and also um, uh, tourists, in, international tourists that come to Chile to see this place because. Uh, All, all is the same. Uh, it's untouchable. Uh, all, all the the shears, the furnitures, all is the same that the times of uh, Paul Sheffer. Uh, 
So we, we had the opportunity to film, to shoot a lot of scenes in the real place. So when you see the film, you, you are uh, seeing, uh, the, the original places and shooting there was very tough for all of us, but also uh, put something special in the mise-en-scene in the, in, 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 in the point of view also, because we felt that the, the, the air of the, of the mystery, uh, of the sadness, uh, and, and everything. So I think that, that, that perspective is into, in, in the film. So did it have an impact on, on the actors too? Yes. For example, um, Hans Sichler, the German actor that, uh, represent, uh, Paul Schaeffer, uh, he come from, from Germany and also actors and on other actors. Also, we had, uh, Chilean actors, but, um, all them, for all them was very, uh, tough and also very interesting to work in the real place. Because, uh, the air, as I say, it was pregnant, the, 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 the image, the, 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 mo the movement, the, the, the voice, you know? Uh, speaking of working with Hans, uh, Zischler, the, uh, the actor who plays the leader of, uh, of this colony, I wanted to mm -hmm. know a bit more about, uh, working with him on shaping this performance. Because again, like I was saying earlier, As this film talks about very delicate topics and themes and issues, I felt mm. that his character was very important in kind of maintaining this, this balance of, of, uh, but still representing a type of, uh, madness even in, in some mm. case. Yeah. Um, the, 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 the most important aspect for me in the, that character, it has to, It has to do with a reflection upon the manipulation of Paul Schaeffer through the creation of real staying. So he, he, he become a conductor, a theater, uh, also a movie director. He built a, a reality based on fiction. And that was the, the goal that uh, we decide together in in in, a, in order to prepare the performance between Hans Sichler and and me he Paul Schaeffer he created real movie production inside Colonia Dignidad where the settlers were forced to portray themselves as hard working tidy and happily ha happily living in this place privileged to to follow a road of help and benevolence towards the community However, while those videos were seen by Chilean authorities and also by German embassy, the life inside the colony was one of complete slavery. For this reason, and for many years, this play was named the German miracle of the Saro Chile. So when I say this, quote this, this sentence uh, to, to Hans, the German miracle of the Saro of Chile, he told me, okay, The, 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 the thing, the main thing here in Dignity Colony is the contradiction. So we can work from there. And, and for me it was perfect because Hans, uh, uh, start build a, a character with 
a lot of contradiction in a way of uh, he he was a, a good man but also a monster and don't don't fall in a, a one-dimensional character so for me i think that the, the his work was very good and also hans uh, helped me Uh, to to prepare and fix the 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 dialogues in German uh, because he also is uh, I don't know in English the word he study the, um, the 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 words the 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 language and he come to Chile and he knew the 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 real settlers that uh, still live there. And, and he studied, as I say, the, 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 the German language that they use inside the colonies, very different than the German language that the people use actually in, 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 in now in, in, in Germany. And he, he helped me a lot. So was wow. very good with work with him. Oh, Ma Matthias, we are, we are, uh, out of time, but, uh, I thank you very much for joining us and talking with us about your film, A Place Called Dignity. Thank you very much. Thank you, and, and sorry for my English. <laughs> I no, hope that a... you can understand, and uh, I'm really glad for this invitation. Fred. Cinephile. You're listening to The Big Fred Tuesday, and earlier in the show, I talked a bit about the Italian filmmaker Lina Bertmüller and her trailblazing career. I defined her as defiant, provocative, and irreverent, I mentioned her penchant for upsetting expectations of the viewers, her blend of violence and cheesy humor, the grotesque satire of her movies. Well, in this section, I will talk about which three films I believe to be the best way in for anyone unfamiliar with a wild and wonderful filmmaking. But as a bit of a disclaimer, I should also anticipate that the films I will mention all come from her golden 1970s decade, because after that, it is true that the quality somewhat decreased, as she either looked to fall back on the tried and tested formulas that had established her success in the 1970s, or as she actually overstepped the boundaries of taste in a way that perhaps wasn't all that compelling or necessarily interesting. By saying this, I am not in any way undermining what she did in her career. When I talk about the 1970s, by all means, I talk about one of the best periods of filmmaking of all time, and many would agree with me. This was the period of New Hollywood, and for her to somehow be singled out as one of the most prominent voices of this decade, to the point of becoming the first woman to be nominated for a Best Directing Oscar, the first one in history, well, that's amazing. Now, by all means... This was a long overdue landmark event in the history of the Oscars and in the history of the movies. But in any case, I am certain that the legacy of Lena Wertmüller goes beyond this particular achievement in the history of the Academy Awards. Nonetheless, the first film I have to mention is precisely the one that she was nominated for. Seven Beauties was my way into the wild world of Lina Wertmüller and one of her landmark collaborations with leading man Giancarlo Giannini in his most memorable role. Here, he plays an Italian dandy who betrays every moral value in order to survive, 
during the World War II and in his internment in a Nazi death camp. What is so striking and severe about this film is the bold way in which Wertmüller blends cheesy humour with the atrocities of the rise of totalitarianism, war and the horrors of Nazi death camps as I mentioned. Now this instantly brings to my mind the famous quote by the great Pierpaolo Pasolini who said I think to scandalise is a right, to be scandalised is a pleasure and those who refuse to be scandalised are moralists. Pasolini was assassinated in 1975 and with Salò, which has been completely re-evaluated in recent times, and considering what he had done before then with his jovial trilogy of life films, I see a lot of the spirit of the Pasolini that never was in the movies of Lina Müller. Seven Beauties is a good way in for any newbie because it'll let you know instantly which side to be on, whether you'll be on Lina's side or that of her detractors, her muddy detractors, I should say. Both are fine, of course, because everyone is entitled to an opinion, especially when it comes to her movies. But for a safer entry point, I would suggest The Seduction of Mimi from 1972. Now, this was the movie that established Vermuller's reputation, and it was her first international success. Again, Giancarlo Giannini plays the main role of Mimi, a lower working class guy, a dock worker, who inadvertently becomes embroiled in an increasingly complicated array of personal and external conflicts, including a tumultuous love affair with an anarchist, a heavy misunderstanding with organized crime, and a complicated and violent political situation of the years of lead, during which Italian life was marked by a wave of both far left and far right incidents of political terrorism. Now, this is almost pure slapstick comedy. Anyone familiar with the popular series of Fantozzi films, the first of which came a couple of years after Mimi, will find The Seduction of Mimi, its more daring arthouse companion on the malady of the working class and the terrors of masculine and patriarchal society. It should be mentioned that this was the first film that matched up Giannini with Mariangela Melato. We find them together again in possibly the most famous Lina Wertmüller film and the one that completely divided opinions among scholars on whether she was a misogynist or not. Swept away from 1974. Here, Giannini plays a working class rogue and Melato plays an upper class snob. They find themselves stranded on a deserted island, which becomes the setting for blunt political argument, sexual passion, male dominance, and female submission. The fact that these films are polarizing is proven by the way in which these films struggle to get a higher rating than a 6 out of 10 on the internet. Scholars still talk about them to this day because this is the type of film that can outrage, engulf, and devour you. Today, this type of filmmaking is Almost impossible to imagine. Whether for better or worse, that's up to you to decide. But if you're not familiar with Lena Wertmüller's work, I would suggest that you at least try it out and see what you think. It'll help you find out more about yourself also. And these are my recommendations, so get watching, if you dare. We'll be right back for more Big Fred Tuesday in a moment. Fred. Back with more from this year's Torino Film Festival. This time we will be revisiting Angelo Cerbi's interview with Aranza Santesteban Perez about her personal documentary, 918 Nights. Take a listen. So 918 Nights is your personal story about what happened in those nights of more than two years when you were arrested. From the day you were arrested to the day you were released. And slightly after that. Um... You chose to make a film very personal, but very 
artistic, if I may say so, because the choice of the narrative that you had is really peculiar. Can you tell us something about this? Sí. Eh, bueno, los 918 noches es el tiempo que... So, she said that, eh, as you well said, the film portraits those 980 nights that she spent in prison and uh, afterwards. And that, eh, for that she wanted to make a more cinematic eh, narrative, more kind of sensorial eh, mm, more uh, based in on emotions and she doesn't try to make a linear narrative but more uh, uh, going from one side to the to other side like wondering it's really interesting to see i mean to hear your voice telling, telling your story after those <laughs> years because it it's there is basically nearly no Uh, emotion in it. It's like you were like telling us what is happening, uh, describing what was happening without not narrating what was happening, but describe what happened. So this choice of being a little bit detached, narratively speaking, through your voice from the film that, that we that we are that we were looking at was a deliberate choice, and why did you choose to do that? Lo más difícil en esta película para mí fue encontrar el tono de la voz, la forma mm -hmm. que tenía que tener la voz. So, one of the most difficult parts of making this film was to find the tone of this voiceover to 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 find the, the final shape of, of this voice and there are two two kind of voiceovers. One is the one that uh, she records with a, a voice recorder on the the film. And this voice is uh, recorded on some places that have some kind of uh, relevance for the, her story. And she narrates the thing that happened here, some um, stories. And there is the, the other voice that is a kind of eye through that you can see through um, and from a hole. And is more uh, detached, and because she wants, she didn't want to direct the the viewer of the film and uh, say what uh, they have to feel or see, but she wanted to to make a more um, like plain uh, with no emotions or or feelings. And how was it for you to narrate this your story? Without being so emotional, <laughs> because you know it was. It's a good question. <laughs> yeah, because it's it's a. I mean, you you went through a terrible time of your life, and being able to present it to us in such a very calm and and detached way, even though it's you narrating your story, it's not me narrating your story, which might, it would be much easier for me mm -hmm. to be detached because it was not my life. So how did you m manage to do this? Bueno, yo dejé un tiempo prudencial, un tiempo largo. So uh, she says that in one hand is uh, a question of the time that she 
waits until she decides decides to to make the film that is uh, more or less seven years that it's the time that she she needs to to wait to be able to to understand and to to properly talk about this and there is another thing that is the the intention of the film that she doesn't want to to affect the viewer she doesn't want to to have like a, a big emotional baggage but she wants to to talk about um, a place of political uh, incommodity or something like that to listen to the full interview check out fred.fm forward slash uk that's fred.fm forward slash uk fred film radio cinephile ready or mulled wine we're almost at a show. This is, in fact, the part of the show that the bosses upstairs have singled out as the greatest thing that's ever happened in online film radio broadcasting since sliced bread. It's time once again for a little segment that I like to call Popcorn Classics. And since it is the most wonderful time of the year, I thought it would be just right to choose a film that is essential cinephile Christmas viewing. That's right. So, the film I decided to talk about is Miracle on 34th Street. And specifically, the one written and directed by George Seaton and released in 1947. This is a perennial Christmas favourite. The story, briefly, is as follows. An old bearded fellow walks around New York City streets being his jolly old self. All of a sudden, and partly out of outrage, he finds himself replacing the Santa of a department store after the latter appears to be drunk off his head. Totally unacceptable. He's so good at being Santa, and so determined not to lie about his true identity as Father Christmas himself, that he ends up having to stand up for himself in a court case called to determine his mental health and, more importantly, his authenticity. The film famously starred a young Natalie Wood as the daughter of an ambitious and divorced woman who has little time for the frivolities of Christmas. And by the way, she is played by Maureen O'Hara. While it's easy to see this movie as a whole as a type of representation of the clash between conservative and capitalist America with modernism, it's also admirable to see such a vanguard representation of a modern woman in classic Hollywood. Having said that, the film does have its fair share of elements that are problematic today. This too is part of its representation of everyday life at the time in the States, complete with its cringeworthy racial and class divisions and measurements imposed by the code era. Paradoxically, these aspects give the film a more naturalist side and make it an interesting case study for film scholars as well. Not to mention that, when taken at surface value, it's easy to identify this particular film as a quintessential blueprint for several American Christmas feature films that followed. As a side note, Edmund Gwen. As a side note, Edmund Gwen actually won an Academy Award for playing the role of Chris Kringle. Does that make him the only man in history to have won an Oscar for playing Santi? Admittedly, I have not researched this bit of trivia. But I think I've mentioned enough in my short overview on the film to plead the case in favour of the 1947 Miracle on 34th Street being a jolly good popcorn classic i give it five cups of popcorn five bags of soda and five candy sticks and merry new year to you all i don't know what i'm saying i hope to be i hope to be back in the new year of 1922 and i hope you'll be there to listen to me in 2022 also in the meantime 
Keep listening to all that sweet, sweet content on the Fred Film Radio audio waves and keep watching lots and lots of movies. Till the next time, stay healthy, stay safe, stay strong, stay cinephile, and stay tuned to Fred Film Radio, the festival insider. Fred, 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 Fred. Fred Film Radio, I'm Matt Mikucci from the 64th Berlin International Film Festival. Io sono Valentina Pompili, al Tokyo International Film Festival. Soy Antonio Becker, y estoy aquí con... Internationalen Filmfestspiel in Berlin. Mein Name ist Beatrice Bieden. Ahlan Bekonfi, Fred Film Radio. Fred, Fred, the festival experience in 23 languages. Fred Film Radio, 24-7 on fred.fm and smartphone apps.